All right. Good evening, everybody. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here. We're always glad to welcome folks into our services, whether you're joining us in person or you're joining us online. We want to greet you, and I want to give a greeting to anyone who is a first-time guest with us this weekend. It's always great to welcome first-time guests into our services. And as always, I want to give a special shout-out welcome to all of you joining us at our Church Anywhere campus down in the old Southside neighborhood. If you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it now, and let me hear your pages turning to the Old Testament book of Numbers. And when you get the Old Testament book of Numbers, find chapter 21. While you're turning there, let me just tell you that we had our special big night out dance party uh, last night across the street at the Community Life Center. It was what we did this year instead of uh, Night to Shine. Night to Shine is a special needs prom that we've been involved with for the past several years. Last year, that prom was virtual because of COVID. And uh, when the Tebow ministry decided that they would make it virtual again this year, we just decided we would uh, do our own thing. And I can't tell you how many people I ran into last night because we've been doing this for several years now, and we have the same folks come year after year after year with their caregivers. I can't tell you how many caregivers, how many moms and dads of, uh, of uh, young people who had special needs stopped me at some point in the evening and said, thank you so much for doing this in person. Thank you so much. And so I want to give a big shout out to Heidi Wright, who uh, was in charge of all of that, and her leadership team. Most of them were staff members, and then everybody who volunteered. Thanks so much, because it really was a very, very special evening for everyone. This is week five of this message series called A View from the Top, uh, looking at selected passages from the Old Testament book of Numbers. And the passage we're going to look at uh, this weekend is pretty short, and it's kind of unusual, but it contains some great lessons for all of us. Remember, the book of Numbers is, for the most part, the record of the Israelites, and they're wandering during 40 years uh, in the wilderness. Uh, it's the record of all of the things that happened during that period of time. It's a familiar story in a general sense to most people, even people who uh, don't spend much time in church. The Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for 430 years until God sent Moses to be the great deliverer. And as a result, they had a front row seat to the power of God uh, in a way that no one else had been able to experience before. They saw the plagues that God sent uh, to convince Pharaoh to set them free from their slavery in Egypt. They saw God part the Red Sea so they could uh, uh, flee the pursuit of the Egyptian army. They saw God supernaturally provide food and water in the wilderness. They saw God give the law, the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. They saw the manifestation of the presence of God in some spectacular ways. And all of that happened as God was leading them to a new home that's described in the Bible as a land that flowed with milk and honey. And so I read that and I think if anyone was ever positioned for success and prosperity and abundance, it was the Israelites. But, everyone say but, but they had one really big problem. And they, the problem was they couldn't stop grumbling and complaining long enough to simply trust in God, the God who had shown himself to them over and over again in spectacular ways with all that he had done for them, with the way he had delivered them and provided for them. You would think that they would get to a place where they would start to trust him, but instead they just kept grumbling and kept complaining. And we see that once again in our text. And so if you've got your Bible open to Numbers 21 and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the scripture. As I mentioned, 
It's a pretty brief passage of Scripture. It's just Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. And we actually talked very briefly about this story in the introductory message to the series. So I'm sure it'll be familiar to most of you. This is what we read. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. All right, there it is. You can be seated. And as always, we ask God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's be honest. This is one of those Bible stories that can easily fall into the category of I believe it. Because I believe every word of the Bible, because every word came from God, but I sure don't understand it. So let me just remind you once again that in that introductory message to this series, when I was giving you four different reasons why we should read and study the book of Numbers, one of them, the final one that I gave you, was because the book of Numbers was written to us as a warning. It was written as a warning. And having said that, I'm going to hold my place in Numbers 21, and I'm going to turn in my Bible to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians and the 10th chapter. You can turn there if you want, or you can just look up at the screen. When I get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in my Bible, the chapter heading in my study Bible is Warnings from Israel's History. And what you see in the first few verses is a reference to the Israelites' time in the wilderness. Uh, the, verses, the first few verses talk about their connection to Moses, who was their deliverer. Uh, they talk about the supernatural nature of their provision in the wilderness in the form of food and water. But then you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, and this is what my Bible says. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. And then you keep reading in verses 6 through 10, it says, Now these things occurred, note this, as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. And now note verse 9 in particular, we should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. And then verse 11 finishes up finishes it up by saying, these things happened to them as examples, there we see it again, and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. It's a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. And don't, even for a second, underestimate the importance of these words because one of the most important things we learn from the Old Testament about God in a general sense, is we learn how God feels about sin. 
We learn how God feels about sin. And sadly, that's something that we see over and over again in our Bibles in relation to the Israelites and their time in the wilderness. Now, I'm going to pause for just a moment, and I'm going to talk to you for a brief time about something that I didn't include in my original manuscript, and I didn't make a part of any of the PowerPoint, so it's not going to be on any of the slides that we're going to show you. But I want to talk to you about something to try to help you understand this a little bit better. I'm not sure if you've ever heard the term progressive revelation before in terms of the Bible, progressive revelation, but let me talk to you for a few minutes about the idea of progressive revelation. And you have to listen close because this is something that can easily be misunderstood, and I don't want anybody to misunderstand what we're talking about this weekend. Progressive revelation is basically the belief, it's basically the teaching that in the Bible, God revealed himself and his will with increasing clarity as more and more of the scriptures were written. Now, here's what you have to understand so there's no misunderstanding. This doesn't mean that the earlier sections of the Bible are any less important or in any or are in any way inferior to the sections that came later. It just means that God didn't re- reveal everything about himself and everything about his ultimate will for mankind right away right from the beginning. And so what we have in our Bible is the revelation of truth to more truth to more truth to more truth. We understand that every single word of the Bible is inspired by God. That's exactly what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 when he says, all scripture is God-breathed. Everyone say God-breathed. God-breathed. That's the literal meaning of the word for inspired in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language. That word inspired literally means God-breathed. And Paul says in no uncertain terms in 2 Timothy Chapter 3 and verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed, all of it. And he goes on to saying that it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All Scripture. But God didn't reveal everything we know about him in the beginning. He revealed it in a progressive way. One of the passages that really stands out to me when it comes to this idea of this thought of progressive revelation is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And I'm not going to have them on the screen, but you listen, because in, in that passage, this is what the Hebrew writer says. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And then the Hebrew writer says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, capital S, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. And then he says, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things through his powerful word. Now think about what he's saying there. He's saying in the, in the beginning, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, through men of God bearing the message of God. And that's how he received information about God and information from God. But in these last days, God's not speaking to us through prophets, through mere mortal men. In these last days, God is speaking to us directly through Jesus, who is God in human flesh. And that's exactly what the Hebrew writer is saying about Jesus when he goes, when he says about him, he is the radiance of God's glory. That means he lights up the glory of God for us to see and the exact representation of his being. He's the perfect personal imprint of God in in time and space. That's what he's telling us about Jesus. And so, you can see that there is progressive 
revelation in the Bible. God began in the book of Genesis. And when you get to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, which, by the way, at the very end, in chapter 22, and I believe it's verse 18, I'm thinking on the, on the fly here off the top of my head. Hopefully I'm right. In Genesis, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 18, and this is the reason why I write this, because I, I say this is because we need to understand that, that once we had the Bible, we had all of God's written revelation. There's no revelation yet to, to come. That's something that we need to understand as believers. We don't have time to talk about that in detail, but when somebody comes along and says that they have a new message from God or a new interpretation from God, you, you just need to understand that. That's not true. That's one of the reasons why Revelation chapter 22 and verse 18, the last book in the Bible says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So what we have is the final complete closed canon of scripture. I wish we had time to talk about how that came about. We've talked about in the past. But in this closed canon of Scripture, you see that God revealed himself and his will for humankind in a progressive way. Now, here's why I even bring that up this weekend. Because there have been more than a handful of times over the years when someone has asked me this question. They say, Pastor... Why is it that God seems so much more harsh in the Old Testament than he does in the New Testament? And I think that's a valid question if you're a student of the Bible. You have to understand that's a valid question. And let me just tell you, we first of all understand that there's not a different God of the Old Testament and a different God of the New Testament. It's just there's a different intention for both of those Testaments. And in the Old Testament, as I said earlier, God shows us how he feels about sin. In the New Testament... God shows us how he feels about sinners. And so that's why oftentimes when we read our Old Testaments and we read stories like the ones in the book of Numbers that give us the wilderness wanderings of God's people, the Israelites, it seems like there are some harsh things that happen. But one of the things that God needed us to understand about him from the beginning is the reality of his holiness and the reality of his righteousness and how he hates sin. I think most of us as believers would have a better quality of spiritual life if we really understood and embraced the truth about how God feels about sin because he hates it. And we see the example of that here in what seems like a harsh story. We get to Numbers 21 and verse 4, and the Israelites are complaining again. And they're complaining about everything. They're complaining about the food. They're complaining about Moses and on and on and on. And so God, he had enough, and he sent venomous snakes among them. And some of the Israelites were bitten, and some of them died. But what we also see in this story, and I hope you noticed it because there was an unusual element to this story compared to some of the others we've looked at. What we see in this story is that there was a group of Israelites who were able to have kind of an aha moment, and they were able to kind of see what was happening in a way that helped them connect the dots, so to speak, about the consequences of their behavior. And that's why when you look back at Numbers 21 and verse 7, you read this, the people came to Moses and said, 
We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And then verses 8 and 9 says, The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then anyone who is bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake and lived. Clearly, clearly. The Israelites still had lessons to learn about God. But when they came to Moses, admitted their sin, and asked him to pray to God to take the snakes away, God responded, but not in a way that anyone really expected. Because instead of just removing the problem altogether, here's what I want you to see. This is the heart of the message. God created what I'm just going to call three teachable moments that the Israelites would never forget. And if you're someone who likes to take notes, I want you to write down what the first teachable moment was. The first teachable moment was he gave them a chance to be part of the solution. When it came to this particular problem, he gave them a chance to be part of the, of the solution. And here's what I mean by that. These venomous snakes were a problem for the Israelites, a deadly problem. But when Moses prayed for God to take the snakes away, God chose to leave the snakes but he gave the Israelites a solution to their snake problem. And here's why. Here's why. Because God knows that problems are an, an, inevitable, part, an inevitable part of life. Problems are an ever-present reality that's part of living in a sinful, fallen world. Every one of us understands this, at least on some level. Are there some people who have more problems than others? Absolutely, for a variety of different reasons. But everyone understands the reality of problems because it's an ever-present reality of living in a sinful, fallen world. And one of the consistent truths we see repeated in the Bible over and over again is that God can and will use problems to help us grow. And that's what happens in this story. Because it was the problem of venomous snakes that finally made the Israelites respond to what was going on with some self-reflection. And that's why in verse 7, they came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Can we all just agree together that that is a remarkable confession given what we have seen previously from the Israelites, for them to come to a place, instead of just blaming God or blaming Moses or blaming someone else for their problems, they came and they said, we sinned. That's a remarkable confession for these people. They're taking responsibility for their own circumstances. I, I love this verse in Proverbs Chapter 19 and verse 3. Look at it with me on the screen. In fact, that's such a great verse. Let's read it together. Let me hear your voices. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Have you ever known anybody who was mad at God because of a problem in their life that they created? Have you ever been that person? I got to admit that I've been that person before where I was kind of a little bit ticked off at God, even though what was going on in my life was largely my own fault. But we have an incredible way of rationalizing things that make us a victim rather than a culprit. 
And that's a powerful verse here. And we see that in the Israelites' lives over and over again. And that's why this is such an incredible moment here. That's a great verse. I actually like the way it's, that's the way it reads in my NIV Bible. I actually like the way it reads in the contemporary English version of the Bible. In the contemporary English version, it just goes like this. We are ruined by our own stupidity, though we blame the Lord. And that's the truth. That's the reality of many of our lives. Now, I want you to listen to me really close because I want to give a disclaimer. I'm not saying that every problem or that every trial or every setback you face in your life is your fault because another reality of living in a sinful, fallen world is that sometimes we're just victimized by this sinful, fallen world. And we can be victimized by things that we had nothing to do with in any way, shape, or form, but some of those things are our fault. Some of the things that happen to us are the result of our own actions. That's why Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, it says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. What were the Israelites doing? They're doing the same thing they'd always done. They were grumbling and complaining. They were grumbling and complaining about everything. They were spending all of their time spreading poison with their words, spreading poison with their attitudes, and spreading poison with their actions. And when you do that, you... Make yourself a mark for trouble. But when they had a moment of perspective and realized that what they were experiencing with these venomous snakes was not really Moses' fault and it was not really God's fault but their own fault, they set in motion a solution to the problem. And so God didn't take the snakes away because the snakes provided a teaching time for the Israelites that they needed to remember. When problems come into our lives, especially when they come into our lives over and over and over again, instead of blaming someone else or blaming God, we need to spend some healthy time in self-introspection and see what might be going on in our life that continues to make us the target of whatever problem or problems it may be. And we need to remember that God can and oftentimes will use anything, everyone say anything, anything to teach us and mold us and shape us and refine us into the people he wants us to be. Here's number two. Write this down. He gave them a new way to look at their problems. He gave them a new way to look at their problems. And I'm going to go back to Numbers 21 and verse 8 for this. In verse 8 we read, So the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole, Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Now, I'll be honest that when I first encountered this story a long time ago, I was a little confused by this. This, this didn't connect with me right away. And, and, and you can look at this story and you can think, why would God tell Moses to make a snake because snakes are the enemy? Why would he tell Moses to make a snake because snakes are the problem? So why make a replica of a snake? Why not make something, for example, that would be a reminder of God or a replica of somehow of the righteousness or the holiness or the power of God? That seems like a much better choice to me than a snake. But then you go back to the Ten Commandments. Remember, they left Egypt and they went to Mount Sinai and Moses went up on the mountain and he got the Ten Commandments from God. And those commandments are recorded. One of the places they're recorded is in Exodus chapter 20. And Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4 says, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water below. In other words, God had forbade them from 
using any kind of graven image in worship. And he did that because, you know, for a lot of different reasons. But one of the main reasons is because God, I mean, the one true God that we love and serve cannot be reduced to any kind of a mere image or form. A statue, which what we normally think of when we think of an idol, is a, power, is a powerless, lifeless, useless thing. And God can't be reduced to something like that because in contrast to that, God is alive and God is omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. And God is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere at the same time. And God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. And so there's nothing in the world that you could, you could shape or form or choose that could ever capture the full essence of who God is. Our problems, on the other hand, are not all-powerful. And our problems, on the other hand, are not everywhere at the same time. And our problems are not all-knowing. And think about this with me for a moment. It might sound odd to you, but our problems can oftentimes be captured by an image. That was the case for the Israelites in this particular setting. Their problem was venomous snakes. And so God told them to make an image of a venomous snake. What I think God wanted them to do was to put that snake on a pole and look at it. And every time they look at it, they need to remember this snake is nothing compared to the power of God. You look at the, 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 uh, uh, the form of a snake on a pole and you're reminded of just how useless any kind of an image is in contrast to God. This is just a piece of bronze. We serve a mighty God who is the creator and sustainer of both heaven and earth. We serve a God who divides seas. We serve a God who provides food like the morning dew and who brings water from rocks in the desert. We serve a God who delivers. These snakes are nothing compared to God. And I think that was a part of what Moses had in mind, or God had in mind, rather, when he told Moses to tell those Israelites to make the image of a snake and put it on a pole. And you know what? It, it occurs to me, and this may sound, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say ahead of time, this might sound like a really silly, maybe even stupid thing to say. But hear me out. Since oftentimes our problems are things that can be captured by an image or a picture, if you just think about it long enough and hard enough, you could probably figure out different ways to do that. Maybe if you've got some really big problem in your life, maybe you ought to try to find something that reminds you of that problem. And every time you look at it, you just like the Israelites in the wilderness, you look at it and you're reminded this is nothing compared to God. Nothing. This thing that's capturing my attention seemingly every moment of every hour of every day, this thing that is always on my mind, this thing that always seems to be the thorn in my side is nothing. Everyone say nothing. Nothing compared to God. Nothing. And remember that. Here's the third thing. Write this down. He was teaching them about the power of faith. Moses 21 and verse 9 says, So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. And friends, I believe without question, without doubt, this is the central reason why God told Moses to make a bronze snake and put it up on a pole so that anyone who was bitten could look at the snake and live. God was teaching the Israelites about the power of faith. I think the other first two things we talked about are good applicable points, but this is the main thing here with this story. God was teaching the people about the power of faith. 
faith, which is the key critical part of our lives as the children of God, it's totally illogical to think that anyone looking at a bronze image of a snake could be healed from a venomous, deadly snake bite. But that's exactly what God told Moses to tell the people to do, and he told them to do that as an act of faith because it was going to take an act of faith in God's plan for them to be healed. Let's remind ourselves for a moment of how the Bible defines faith. It's in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. I'll put it up on the screen. The Hebrew writer says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Think about that for a moment. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That verse is teaching us a lot of things. And one of the things it's teaching us is that faith in and of itself is illogical. Being certain of what you hope for, sure of what you hope for, and certain of what you do not see. But the Bible makes it clear, both in the Old and the New Testament, that God requires faith from all of us, no matter how illogical that faith may seem at times. I mean, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 gives us that definition of faith. You go down a little bit further in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 and says, and that verse starts off like this, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. And there was nothing about looking at this bronze snake for healing that made any sense, but that's what God instructed the people to do. And so it was going to take an act of faith, maybe I should say an act of obedient faith, to secure their healing. You know, in the first message from this series, uh, when I was talking about a little bit of background, I gave you four reasons why we needed to read and study the book of Numbers. One of them that we've repeated over and over again is the truth that Numbers was written as a warning. Another one of the reasons was because... Uh, the book of Numbers is referenced throughout the rest of the Bible. And I even went so far in that introductory message to say that not knowing the book of Numbers could possibly hinder your ability to fully understand other parts of the Bible. And then I referenced Jesus' conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Now we're all the way, we fast forward all the way into the New Testament. Now we're past the Old Testament into the New Testament. And remember, the Old Testament is like an old covenant and the New Testament like a new covenant. You could even say the Old Testament is like an old agreement with God and the New Testament like a new agreement with God. Now God has revealed even more of himself when we get to John chapter 3 because God is present in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is showing us what God is really like. And with every day of Jesus' life and every word that he speaks, we're learning more and more about the reality of who God is. And Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus, who is a religious man but feels like something's missing in his life. And Jesus says in John 3, verses 14 and 15, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son must... So the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may not, excuse me, may have eternal life. And then what did Jesus say next? He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, John 3, 16. And what Jesus is saying is that that bronze serpent all the way back in the wilderness that we're talking about in Numbers chapter 21 was a foreshadowing of Jesus. You could even say that it was a typical prophecy of Jesus and what was going to happen with Jesus because just like the Israelites looked by faith and God's instruction at the serpent and were physically healed, everyone who looks by faith into the truth of who Jesus was, the Son of God, can be spiritually healed. 
And as illogical as it might have seemed to look at a, a bronze image of a serpent to be healed from a serpent bite, it's just as illogical to think that you could look at Jesus beaten and bludgeoned and brutalized on a cross and find spiritual healing from that moment in his life, the lowest moment of his life, when he died on the cross in your place and mine to pay the penalty for our sin. But that's what happened, and that's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, but God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it's faith in Jesus that secures our forgiveness and gives us a new beginning and a new future that's no longer tied to the past. Look up. In Numbers 21 for the Israelites, it was look up to a bronze serpent to find physical healing. In John chapter 3, it's look up at a dying Savior to find the healing that you need more than any other kind. When I was putting this message together, I ran across a commentator who said this about today's story, the one that we're looking at in Numbers 21. He says that in this moment with this serpent, God made a covenant with his people that he began to call the look-up covenant because if you look up to him in faith, he will save you. He won't make all your problems disappear. They will still bite you from time to time but God will give you the power you need to overcome whatever comes your way. And so how do you need to apply this look-up covenant to your life today? Because whatever the need of your life is, here's what you need to understand. God has the answer you need. You just have to look up to him in faith to experience it. And so I guess my question for all of you would just be this. What do you... What do you need to look up to Jesus for in your life today? What's going on in your life right now? That you need to look up to Jesus in faith to overcome. If you're here and you've never surrendered your life in complete faith and trust to Jesus and you don't have this certain assurance inside of you that your sin has been forgiven and you're living in a right relationship with God and you have the promise of eternal life, then what you need to do is you need to come face to face with the reality of your own sin and your own inability to get to God on your own and look up to Jesus and say, I put my faith and my trust in you and I'm counting on your grace to forgive my sin and give me a new life. Maybe there's some some specific issue that's going on in your life and you've been bitten by it over and over again, just like the Israelites in Numbers 21 were bitten by these venomous snakes. And you're, you may not be physically dying, but there's a part of you that's dying right now, emotionally or mentally or, 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 or physically somehow. And you, you just know your life is not right and you're suffering in some way. Then what you need to do is you need to look up to Jesus in faith. 
Maybe you need to be exactly like the Israelites were and say, we sinned, I sinned, I'm, I, this is the reality of my life. I'm, I'm suffering the consequences of my sin, and I know I have no one to blame but me. And you need to remember that God promises forgiveness if you look up to Jesus. I love the words that, that the apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 when he said, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us from our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When we come to Jesus by faith and we look up to him and we share the need of our heart, we can know that he'll respond. We got a look up covenant with God, a look up agreement with God. And sometimes that's exactly what we need to do. I want you to pray with me. Father in heaven, Thank you for our time tonight. Thank you for this unusual story. Thank you for the lessons that can be learned. You know what's going on in the heart and mind of every single person that's here. You know what we need. And I pray for anyone who needs to look up to Jesus right now. Look up to him for salvation. Look up to him for healing or relief, forgiveness, guidance, comfort. Give us the courage to do that. And help us to have the faith that's required. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing.